0: Now we're not just evangelizing, catechizing, and baptizing. We're re-evangelizing the baptized because the romance has gone out of so many people when it comes to faith in Christ.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm joined with the illustrious co-host uh uh dave the vengeance van
2: vickle how you doing dave the vengeance vengeance, i'm okay i'm good i'm good man i uh it's 60 degrees here in pittsburgh today which you know for me that's that that means i'm happy you know i i love the warmth so it's it's a beautiful day i got my door open and everything (laughs) and uh yeah so things are things are going well i i do have to say you know before we get started that uh I just want to say thank you to all the people who have been sending us emails and text messages and and however they contact us, uh, praying for my wife. Um, she's she's doing OK. She's been pretty sick from the from the treatment. But, um, you know, she's she's got the the right attitude and she's just she's suffering. Well, I'm, I'm watching kind of watching the cross in front of me and and, uh, you know, next week we'll find out some some big tests and things like that. So hopefully uh, we'll see some progress. So thank you for the prayers and please continue. Continue them. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And we are going to keep praying, everyone, please, uh, you know, a decade a day um, is what I tell my uh, my friends who reach out, especially on the other podcast, Catching Foxes. They all the we did a novena for Amber and, and we're going to keep that going. A decade a day is what I ah, say for the Van Vickle. So you. thanks. Um, and today is a very special day because we yeah. have on a very we're nerding out here. Yeah. Today is the <laughs> nerdiest day. We will have deep dive. <laughs> into the glory of our church. We have Dr. Scott Hahn from Franciscan University of Steubenville here. How are you doing today, Dr. Hahn?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I am. I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I've been living that uh, carnivore lifestyle, so uh got a lot yeah. of energy here. <laughs> yeah, me, too. <laughs> um, me too. So today, uh, we just wanted to start introducing... Um, like a, a a a walk through and an understanding about the central role of evangelization and how it connects with theology and the study of the faith, the history of the church, and so one of the great things uh, I reached out to the Saint Paul Center. Um, It was actually funny. We had Dr. Han about two years ago at our parish and they were doing a follow up and we were talking about parish ministry and all this stuff. And I said, hey, could he come on the show? And they said, yes. And one of the big things that we wanted to talk about was, you know, we have some new products coming up at the St. Paul Center, the Bible and the Church Fathers being one of them. And it started me thinking, you know, in the early church, uh, I listened to a lot of evangelical preachers, and they always talk about Acts of the Apostles as their model of the church. And for them, that really means being like St. Paul and just going out and founding churches and preaching. But the church spread so fast in the first 300 years through martyrdom, through faithfulness of the apostles' teaching, through the early community. I thought it would be awesome if we could have a theologian who could actually speak to and walk us through the connection between, you know, Sacred Scripture and what we see in Acts and into the early church fathers. So, in my parish, I help train Catholic uh, Protestants who want to become Catholic. I have this program called Inclusion, and one of the big things is building a bridge for many of these Protestants from the Bible to church history. And the main thing that I do is through the church fathers and showing how, you know, Acts of the Apostles, which every non-denom pastor in my area. Feels like their church that they founded is it is just a natural extension of Acts of the Apostles. They all say, say, you know, I'm reading Acts of the Apostles, and this is how the early Christian community met." Right. And I show them how like the bridge to understanding the church today is through the fathers. And you have this wonderful new series coming out called "The Bible and the Church Fathers." How um, meaningful, you know, are the church fathers for you? How did you get involved with them, especially uh, in the task of evangelization? Because they, I mean, uh, I believe it was Doctor Shrek said that the church grew 40% every 10 years in this age of the fathers. So uh, what would you say for, for people? Like, how did you get into them? How did you discover them? And how can they be a good tool for us for evangelization?
0: Right. Well, that statistic is derived from the empirical research by a sociologist of religion, Professor Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity. And he was an agnostic when he wrote that. He has subsequently become a believer. But he does point out that the early church grew at 40%, uh, but it did so not primarily through martyrdom and not Mm -hmm. primarily through books, because almost nobody actually owned books. And so it was obviously the the witness of the bishops and the presbyters in the early church, but it was mostly through friendship and uh, a whole social network that was formed in the context of the Roman Empire especially in times of famine and pestilence, a a lesson we can learn from today, I suppose. But really, the key, you know, when you look behind the sociological research into the book of Acts, the big thing that I discovered and that so many other Protestants discovered is that, you know, the desire to be a New Testament Christian, the, the desire to emulate the New Testament church as it was founded in the first century, in a certain sense is a it's an ill-fated quest. It's uh, it's a kind of dream because they didn't start the New Testament Church apart from the old. Yeah, uh, the right. New Testament is concealed in the old, and the old is revealed in the new. And so, the precursor to baptism obviously was circumcision. The precursor to Eucharist was obviously Passover. And so, you have this pattern that we often overlooked as Protestants until you begin to look closely at the early Church body because they were the ones, as Augustine would say, that the new was concealed in the old, and the old is revealed and fulfilled right. in the new. And you really don't understand what's going on in Acts. Even beginning in chapter one, when Peter replaces Judas with Matthias, uh, they, they, they basically take a vote, but it's drawing lots, which was a custom that you had in the Old Testament. In fact, when Luke wrote the prequel, Gospel of Luke, in Luke 1, it was by the drawing of lots that the priest, Zechariah, was selected. Right. So in actual, it's the drawing of lots by which Judas' successor is selected, namely St. Bias. And so you can see the priesthood of the new covenant building upon the priesthood of the
1: and Oh, that's so, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Wow, at all.
0: Yeah, and you can hear it too in terms of the verses from the book of Psalms that Peter cites in explaining why Judas's house will be desolate, but his office, let another man take, and the word for office in Greek is episcopate, where we get episcopal succession. And so, if even Judas leaves a a vacant seat, you know, how much more do the other 11, when they die, you know, do their offices cry out for episcopal succession, including Peter, petrine succession. And so, when you read the early church fathers in the first three, four, five centuries of the church, you discover that they already had an interpretive system in place where you're always reading the new in light of the old, and you're always reading the old as fulfilled in the new. And boy, once you drink a little bit of that, I tell you, it really intoxicated. In fact, I think it was Gregory of Nyssa, one of the three Cappadocians in the first century, who spoke of the the inebriation of drinking right. the one of God's word. And it's not just the New Testament, it's the old. You can see in the early church, there was a tendency to do what Protestantism does. And it was, you know, in the third century, the figure we call Marcion. Yeah, and Marcion right. was in Rome, who basically wanted to start with the New Testament and restrict that to Paul and his writings and Paul's protege, Luke, in his gospel. And of course, he is roundly condemned. And so, That sort of forces the issue, and you recognize that, okay, the church's whole mission is rooted in the whole scripture, the Old Testament and the New, and then you discover something even deeper, that the New Testament writers don't refer to the Old Testament, they refer to it as the Law and the Prophets, the Writings, just like Jesus does. And so, the Old Testament isn't some substandard section, it's graphe, it is scripture. And it's yeah. read with great devotion and it's proclaimed as having been fulfilled. And again, once you start going down that road or once you have the first four or five of those dominoes fall, you discover you're in a heap of insight, but in a heap of trouble.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, you know what I, I found, Dr. Han, that it was interesting is that I thought I always assumed that the church fathers were inaccessible to me, but about two years ago, um, after a conversation with a, a cardinal down south, he said, you Wait, know, what just cardinal? Go,
1: what cardinal was
0: that? You're a okay. your cardinal. Cardinal oh, DiNardo. Right? Oh, he's Di Nardo. a Steubenville native. That man right. was born here in right. town. And I tell right. you, he is a great petrologist. He is a true right. expert on the fathers. Yeah, yeah
2: and, and, and he That's said right. to me, you know, just go to the fathers. And I started reading them, and I'll tell you, to be honest with you, I, I am shocked. I was shocked at how simple and how pastoral, but yet how profound and philosophical, like it was all blended perfectly together. And really I saw it as such an amazing kind of kindling for evangelization because, because nothing was separated. And I have a a brother-in-law who, you know, Dr. Nutt, right? Uh, Oh, very well. Who's, who's a professional theologian. And there are papers he writes that I, I could honestly say, I hate to say this, but they, they're hardly relevant to me who work in ev- working in evangelization, whereas the fathers of the church, you know, it, it was so relevant and so, uh, I mean, I can just see why the church grew so fast because it was so well uh, packaged, I guess, the whole wisdom of the church and all this, you know, it was amazing.
0: You know, in defense of my former student and dear friend, Dr. Roger <laughs> Nutt, his treatment of now. whether or not There are two essays or one in Christ really does pertain to evangelization. The thing is, it's about a mile away, and so it takes forever. And so it is hard to access. And you've put your finger right on the difference between speculative theology, which can be really deep or lofty, and pastoral theology, which is ordered directly to the spiritual needs of the people of God. And that's what the early church fathers were. And let me say why. Because, first of all, we call them church fathers Because that's what they were. They were being used by God the Father as human, earthly instruments for the rebirth of the sons and daughters of God, for the renewal of the family of God, we call the Catholic Church. And as Americans, we know the importance of our own founding fathers and the documents they left us. How much more is that true for us as Catholic Americans to see that the early church fathers were our founders and the documents they left us? were not specimens in speculative theology. They were homilies. They were right, letters. Yeah. They were commentaries. But a second thought is this, that if you look at all of the the names of the early church fathers, you basically see that except for maybe one, like St. Ephraim, who was a deacon, all of the others were not only presbyters, but most all of them were bishops. And it's yeah. not a coincidence because to be a bishop is to be the father of a diocesan clan, an extended family. And likewise, to, you know, and so we can look at our bishops and pray for them as we pray for our dads. And at the same time, we can look back at the early church fathers and recognize it wasn't a coincidence that God had appointed them to serve as successors to the apostles. Because just as Israel was a man named Jacob, whose name got changed by God to Israel when he had 12 sons who became 12 tribes. So Jesus is the new Israel. He appoints the 12 disciples. He says, You'll sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But when you're dead, everything is defunct? No. Yeah, when you're exactly. dead, you're going to have success just like the 12 sons. And so the new Israel awesome. has as an apostolic succession all the way to this time. But if you go back to the founding period, the founding fathers, you really see something that is directly accessed. St. Irenaeus in the second century was discipled by St. Paul, who, as the bishop of St. was personally discipled by none other than St. John himself. Yeah. Was removed in the writings of Irenaeus from the great Evangelist, And not only that, but John the theologian has these yeah, in the church fathers. And so, I mean, it just puts you in such close proximity. It puts you in intimate touch with the gospel, with Jesus, with the apostles. And, you know, Jesus didn't say, write this in remembrance of, he said, do this something as a matter of fact, all of the 12, went proclaiming the gospel and doing this in reverence, this being the Eucharist, this being what Jesus called the New Testament, but yeah. most of them didn't yeah. end up contributing any books to the collection of 27 that we now call the right. New Testament because they were lazy or disobeying, because they <laughs> were Jewish, preaching the gospel. And so evangelization is more than just a personal relationship. If it's rooted in the covenant, the old and the new, and it's a family bond. And just as we birth our kids, you know, through our lives, through our lives as mothers, we don't just leave them. We have to nurture them from infancy to childhood, when they become boys and girls, and then teens, and until men and women, husbands and wives. So, evangelization in the early church was never simply reduced to getting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Start Wait, can, cat, you, can you say that right? again?
1: Can you say that again? In the early church. It wasn't just about introducing people to a personal relationship.
0: That's right. I mean, when I look at the old evangelization, I see the template for the new. Because you know, Catholics agree with what we called the four spiritual laws when I was a Protestant. Yeah. God loves us. You sin. Christ right. died. Now we've got to choose to do. We got to choose to believe. But I mean, initial evangelization, which presents the kerygma, the simple core of belief you know, makes you an initial convert. But if you were sincere and truly committed, you then became a catechumen because you were no longer just going to be evangelized. You were now going to be catechized. And it isn't as though you stop being evangelized because if anything, the evangel, the good news goes to a new level. But all of that is preparation for being baptized and receiving, you know, Holy Communion. And so there's three stages, basically evangelizing, then catechizing, and then baptizing or sacramentalizing. And the thing, you know, I, I always compare that to marriage because that's what church fathers did. Initial yeah. evangelization brings about a personal relationship, but that's what I had with Kimberly 42 years ago until we got engaged. And then we had a kind of commitment that went beyond initial conversion or personal relationship. So from courtship to engagement to marriage is sort of the analogy for initial evangelizing and then catechizing where you enter into this committed relationship the catechumens learned the our father they learned the creed they learned the old testament and the new they learned the story of salvation but all of that was preparation like my engagement to kimberly for the marriage supper of the lamb for receiving the body blood soul divinity of christ in their first holy communion typically on easter vigil and then you're off and running because if anything. The good news, the evangel for people who are baptized doesn't cease any more than romance ceases when you get married. I suppose for many people it does. And that's why you've got to rekindle the fire of love in order to kind of renew the wellsprings in your your marriage. And that is exactly what the new evangelization is for us. Because now we're not just evangelizing, catechizing, and baptizing. We're re-evangelizing the baptized because the romance has gone out of so many people when it yeah. comes to faith in Christ that's awesome yeah
1: that i awesome. mean i just think of the what is it the letter to the church in ephesus in the book of revelation like you've forgotten one thing i have against you you've forgotten me your first love like that right. that understanding of and th- this is one of the things that me and dave harp on a lot in this in the context of this podcast is we want to enable people to recover the charisma within a catholic context and the catholic context is not me and jesus alone and that's it so when we say a personal relationship with jesus christ we don't mean a privatized or an individualized relationship it's a kingdom relationship it's a relationship that i have to consent to that's why every sacrament has a consenting moment Right. You know, do you what do you ask of the church? Baptism. What, what does baptism give you? New life in Christ. You know, you have these moments within the church. Um, and one of the things the reason why I think of consent is I just launched a new um, class working with uh, just small groups of couples on their convalidation to prepare them for convalidation. And we spend uh, a whole hour going through matrimonial consent in the catechism, in the code of canon law and in the actual liturgy. Because the idea of it is this notion that's so fundamentally Catholic is the cooperation right, with God's grace. And it's this um, understanding that for many of us Catholics, we were raised in a faith that was assumed and it was never proposed. And for some people, it was imposed by your parents on you. So you never had this, um, the charisma the cross and resurrection, and this is the person of Christ for you, you know, whether for spiritual laws or whatever, right? You've never even had, most Catholics have never had that proposed. And then when you start to study the catechism, especially I've been doing a deep dive in in the liturgy and the sacramental part of the catechism, so not in the seven sacraments, but just in that, you know, section one of part two, and to see like St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, so rigorously apply the Paschal mystery and the good news that it is, to the sacramental theology of the church, it awakens within people a hunger for the Eucharist. And the sad thing is, there's always this detachment between, you know, uh, I think it was you, Dr. Hahn, who one time said, when you meet Protestants that become Catholic, they're thankful for their Protestant upbringing because it gave them Jesus. When you meet Catholics who become Protestants, they're hateful of their Catholic upbringing because they say, why didn't you ever tell me this? Why didn't you ever introduce me to Jesus? And I was like, what are you talking about? We give people Jesus away all the time. But now that I'm older and I work with adults full time for the last six years, I used to do youth ministry. You see it. You see people who are sacramentally, you know, technically practicing Catholics, but there's a switch that gets, it's like the light comes on inside them when they see Christ in the middle and his saving action in the middle. But it has to be more than this thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's how does that manifest today by the power of the Holy Spirit in my own life?
0: Yeah. I mean, several things you said have really caught my attention. You know, first of all, in Revelation 2, that letter to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. I mean, that, you know, when I pray to uh, St. Anthony for lost objects, I frequently ask him to help me find my first love, because I sometimes lose that. And uh, I think that pleases him uh, more than when I've lost my keys and just go to him. Um, The second thing you said that I really, really strikes me is, you know, this idea for a person relationship. I mean, this is so crucial. You know, I was just reading recently from none other than The recently retired Archbishop of uh, Philadelphia, uh, Archbishop Charles Chaput, who's been the Episcopal advisor to our St. Paul Center since its founding 20 years ago.
1: And he described
0: in a talk. Yeah, he's a dear friend and a great shepherd. Uh, He was describing how he grew up Catholic and was faithful and practicing and all of that. But it wasn't until he ran into some Protestants that he was challenged to personalize his own sacramental relationship with christ in a way that went beyond the mere ritual now he wasn't saying that i was an unbeliever it was just a kind of rote routine sort of thing you know and you know that's a sign of ill health in some ways in other ways it's a sign of normality because you know my kids grew up in my home and they knew they were my kids they didn't wake up every morning and just celebrate the fact that right. they had a <laughs> first relationship with scott yeah. on or kimberly or each other as siblings it was just sort of like the normal thing you know yeah. but when you yeah. live in a culture like ours that not only takes its cudgels to the family and breaks the families down but also takes the hammers and thongs to the uh the faith and breaks the faith down you end up with a lot of people who are like spiritual and emotional orphans well, and so they've I, got yeah. to Rediscover what used to be obvious and this was not only true for you know, like you said, Catholics who cease to be Catholics become Protestants and they're somewhat resentful and they have disdain towards their own Catholic roots I mean, as a Presbyterian pastor I knew Presbyterian kids who had been born and raised by devout Presbyterian parents who when they joined the non-denominational fellowship they had disdain for denominationalism you know, any kind of institutional Hmm. commitment, any kind of organizational continuity It was reduced down to a kind of individualistic, experiential thing that really inadvertently backs us into a very selfish form of Christianity where it's my experience, it's my conversion that becomes the new normal. And you know, you could look at people who are orphans and realize, okay, I understand, you know, you didn't really thrive in a culture that supported strong families. You didn't you didn't grow up in a culture that supported you know, flourishing Catholic tradition. We've grown up in a culture that is toxic to the core. And yeah. so we've got to pick up people wherever they are and not give them speculative theology before they're ready for it, but draw them into what they already have and show them that you were baptized, you were brought into the family of God. But this was more than ritual. This is the reality of a personal relationship that goes beyond, you know, what I have with some of the neighbor's who live up and down the street, but I hardly know except for their names. You know, I I have a garage mechanic who fixes my car. I've got a personal relationship with him, but this (laughs) is a family bond. This is sort of what God wants to have with us, like what I have with Kimberly and my own kids. And this is something that almost, you know, I think people today almost find it unbelievable that you can have that kind of friendship with Christ that you can have that kind of daily relationship with him. But it's sort of like, that's, what we mean when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, because he has given to us that sonship so that we can be brothers and sisters in a family that is not just human, but truly divine. And, I mean, I'm off to the races. I should be <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, you know, I think this is this is interesting to me. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that. Just when I like, I serve two big, big for, for Pittsburgh, do two, two big Catholic parishes here. And I think that like a lot of our, my people fall into a category of if they just had a little bit more maturity theologically, they would be getting an exponential amount more out of the faith. And I think that there is like kind of this mode where we evangelized for a long time with like kitty evangelization and never had a plan to like introduce anyone into the deeper parts of our faith. And like what you were just saying is so rich to me. And even I felt like a real like twinge in my soul, like just yearning to hear more because it's like, I don't think we talk enough about The deepness of our faith. And so I I love, you know, I mean, I think like your mission at St. Paul Biblical Institute, but also like Bishop Barron and a lot of these people who are trying to bring a little bit of intellectual rigor back to evangelization. I really do think it's just so important.
0: Yeah. And I think that small groups are a big part of this also in parishes, because, you know, it's one thing to belong to a tribe. It's another thing to actually experience life in a household. And, you know, Ah. family is just another word for a small group or a small group is just another word for a surrogate family, a a brotherhood where you have brothers who will hold you accountable. Uh, You also have younger people who are like sons and daughters to you that you can help disciple. You know, And and the family is a kind of universal hermeneutic, so you don't need a master's from Steubenville or a doctorate from Marquette like I got in order to understand what God's fatherly plan is for his beloved sons and daughters. And I think the family is a sort of prime analogate that you find in all four of the Gospels and throughout all of Scripture. And, you know, in some ways, I can kind of beat a dead horse. Okay, Calvin and his (laughs) family— (laughs) <laughs> On the other hand, I think it does scratch where people itch, even if they can no longer reach that far in their lower back to scratch, you know, <laughs> I think of Franciscan, you know, and we, we have every year a homecoming, you know, we have households like other schools have fraternities and sororities. <laughs> we speak of the alma mater, you know, as the nurturing mother, because as we go through life and we, we outgrow the nuclear family in some ways that we grew up in, but we never lose that hunger the intimacy and the communion and the friendship that family represents, you know, which is why family brings us the best, but it also brings us the worst because, you know, in a certain sense, no one can hurt you as much as someone is close to you as family, right? No one right. can bless you as much as someone who's close. And so, you know, what we recognize over time is, wow, okay, God gave us these birth families, but that was sort of like a cocoon from which we emerged not for individualism not for a kind of you know a licentious uh, experiential approach to life that's just about me yeah. but entering more deeply into these kinds of covenant commitments that we share
1: one of the things awesome. that that I constantly harp on, and, and Dave knows this, and Dave must have been like, "Oh, Gomer's so happy right now." Is com- small groups and community, right? You know, and we talk about like there's so many small group ministries, especially you know Rick Warren at Saddleback is really famous for it, and Andy Stanley right. out at North Point Community, they're really famous for their community group models and stuff. And uh, on Ascension, I had a thing called Radical Communities, and it's like it's this artificial structure that you build to have you know adult small groups in homes and stuff. Because there is a deep hunger within people for actual communion. And That's so right. it's, it's almost like the entire world and down to our neighborhood homeowners associations and, you know, uh, suburban architecture is, you know, just put everyone in cars, make them drive 10 miles or 20 minutes to mass so they don't know their neighbor. And they don't, you know, you might recognize someone in the pew because you've either always go to that mass or you did a ministry together. But it's it's not a neighborhood church anymore, and with the priest shortage, like Dave is experiencing in Pittsburgh, you know, you go from two hundred something churches to sixty something. You're losing all those in neighborhood. You know, the what did Pope John Paul That's say? Right. The the church at home in the neighborhood of right. our sons and daughters, and you start to experience this lack of community, and that is the thing that I have realized. At the heart of it is when I need to evangelize someone, when someone you know is hurting the healing balm that can soothe their soul first is I'm not alone. I mean, how many people have said that in the secular world, right? Like, uh, you know, I went to uh, my VA hospital, and I saw a group meeting, and I realized I wasn't alone in my PTSD, right? Uh, I struggled with pornography addiction. I heard a talk. I realized I wasn't alone. The community preaches the gospel in a way that me as an individual with all the right answers and all the proof texts can never actually do. And I was talking with someone. I can't remember who it was for the life of me. And I suspect, uh, Dr. Han, you won't remember either because I, I, I just guess that maybe you do this often, but they were in a bad spot. They were at um, St. Pete's there in Superville. And after mass, you and Kimberly turned to him and said, uh, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Han with my wife, Kimberly. Would you want to come back to our house for brunch? And he said that set him on a whole new path in his life. And I cannot remember for the life of me who that was. But that just extension of like, here is my home. I'm here to serve you changed a person's life. And that's the part of the evangelization that I really want to get back to.
0: You know, to, to kind of coordinate um, what Dave said about going deeper and what you're saying, Michael, about um, getting together and growing closer. I mean, it's like one hand washes the other because people don't generally find themselves interested in going deeper if they're just doing it alone. Uh, and likewise, people don't want to just simply get together if they're yeah. going to share warm fuzzies and not much more, you know, so initial conversion, we get changed, then we get together and then we can really get going
1: Yeah, and then going
0: <laughs> means going deeper, you know, put out into the deep. And I do believe that for some, this means, uh, studying scripture, doctrine, catechesis for others. It means spiritual warfare of which you're a sort of a, a local expert, Dave, and, uh, You know, I just believe that what we're seeing now, we're almost too close to recognize how unique it is. But when I, I was scheduled to be in Rome this week for spring break, but because of the virus, uh, that was canceled. It's going to be leading a pilgrimage for a hundred folks and teaching a course for 60 seminarians on worship in the New Testament. But you know, this this experience for me is uh, a time where you recognize by going to a place like Italy or England, you know, they'll come up to you and say, What's it like to be an American Catholic? What's it like in the U.S. (laughs) to see, you know, not just a few, not just dozens, but hundreds of lay apostolates, ministries, organizations, you know, on the Internet, but also on TV, on Catholic radio stations are continuing to multiply publications, books, and so on. Podcasts, <laughs> yeah. There we go. We're almost too close to this to recognize yeah. what is exploding before our very eyes, and it really is something of a springtime. I mean, let's admit it: the darkness of our culture <laughs> is getting darker and deeper faster than any of us expected. But the light is growing brighter and shining more luminously than I had enough faith to pray for 33 years ago when I first entered the church, I'm going on 34 now, and. Uh, So, I mean, this podcast, like so many other things, like spokes that converge in the hub of the wheel, embody a new evangelization and show us all the different outlets that when we get changed, when we get together, when we get going, we're going to find people to go with and to go deeper with too.
1: And the, the first people that took me deeper into my Catholic faith was definitely... Donald and Teresa Gormley, my parents. And my dad's well, job had moved him uh, to the West Coast. And when we were living in Oklahoma, and I would spend my summers out there and he would fly back as much as he could. Um, but we were kind of living in, you know, two different houses at that at that time. And one of the things that my dad did was he would drive to this little Catholic bookstore that the owner in, in Long Beach, the owner had a relationship with St. Joseph's Communications, and this is yes. in the mid-90s. And my dad started, you know, and this is the the beginning of the big wave of apologetics and all this. And uh, I discovered your audio cassette tapes like a gentleman. Uh, I discovered those old tapes that my <laughs> that my dad would acquire. I mean, I didn't realize this, but they were like your Franciscan lectures, your your talks around <laughs> the country. And so when I was in eighth grade, I started listening to this stuff. Um, I started consuming this and I was struggling hardcore with the idea of how could an all good God allow evil in the world? And a lot of my friends, they didn't care. They didn't, you know, whatever. But, um, I discovered a tape series and I must've worn that sucker out. Um, it was I believe it was a four cassette tape series and it was called, where is God in an ungodly world? And you walked through systematically whether you're talking about Dr. Peter Craft and Ronald Taselli's uh, Handbook of Christian Apologetics right. um, and Fundamentals of the Faith, and then you talk about this, the five ways of St. Thomas and some other things, and then you end with C.S. Lewis's moral argument in Mere Christianity. And I can re- distinctly remember being in 10th grade, listening to this at like 1 o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, and then the tape ended, and I just flipped it over to the next, and just hit replay and listened to it all over again and all over again, and that's why I'm Catholic. It was because I finally found something that wasn't, well, it's a mystery. Well, it's a mystery. It was, well, hear how we struggle with the mystery. And here's yeah. light that we can that we can see on the edges of the of the darkness that is the Odyssey and stuff. And it was something that was so powerful to me. And the funniest thing is, I use that all the time. The other day, a high school student came up to me and was like, if God wasn't real, we would invent them anyway. And I looked at him, I was like, oh, it sounds like Feuerbach. I remember when Dr. Hahn (laughs) quoted Feuerbach and said, if we were to, and so I literally almost quoted you, I said, yeah, well, if we would have invented our own God, we never would have invented this God. All-knowing, all-seeing, he knows your every thought and he's never going to change. Do you think we would have invented a God like that? And they were like, huh. You know, and, and right. so that intellectual rigor, I mean, that changed my life. And I reached out to the St. Paul's folks, and they're like, we're going to put these on our store today. And so they're going to have these stocks that I've never seen in CD or MP3 form, and now they're going to have available to, to buy from the St. Paul Center. I, could, I couldn't be happier.
0: Glory to God, you just made my day, Gomer. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, you know, it reminds me of the the need that we all have to not only go deeper for the interior change that God wants to bring about in us, but then to take it out and to give it to others. It's almost like inhaling the breath of God's spirit and then exhaling so that others get to hear what it was that God used. And you know, as I mentioned to you before we began the program, so much of my own study is a form of self-therapy, self-medication, because I am not by disposition like a cheery optimist the way Kimberly is. And so I need to find reasons for hope. I need to find reasons to believe that God is bringing about greater good by allowing this kind of evil. And I, I I, I look around and sometimes I come up short because I find that a lot of answers that folks provide are superficial or just, or just unconvincing. But when you find gold, you know, it's not just what glitters. It really is what is of of, of value. And uh, in the Catholic tradition, you know, it's not only there, but it's like gold, silver, emeralds, rubies, diamonds, you know, and pearls. Right. And it's just freaking inexhaustible. I mean, no matter <laughs> how deeply you dive, you just keep finding more. And okay. you got to come up for air and then share with others and then go down again. And uh, what, you know, are, are we allowed to have this much fun? I think we are, <laughs> you know, especially as it brings glory to God and souls to Christ. Yeah, that's great.
1: What's moving your heart right now? Yeah, what, that's what, what I want to know. Yeah, What, what
2: books, is, what movements, what things are, what are you working on? What are the, what's going on now?
0: Well, the St. Paul Center is really thriving. And so we've got uh, nearly, uh, well, actually over 30 people full-time and they're co-workers, uh, not primarily employees. And so we're doing uh, the Bible and the Church Fathers, which is live streaming during Lent for free if you purchase the, uh, the workbook. And also I'm coming out with a book probably around Easter week entitled Hope to Die, uh, which goes into the Christian meaning of death and the hope of the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And uh, the catechism says that the resurrection of the body or the flesh is the single most incomprehensible and hotly contested belief in the early church and still today. And so I even touch upon oh. a, hot, uh, a hot topic like uh, cremation in the end. And uh, so anyway, I'm looking forward to publishing that with Emmaus Road, which is now the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center. So thanks for asking.
2: Yeah, that, that's awesome. I can't wait to to read that book. And hopefully, maybe after you release it, you can come back on and we can talk about it, because that sounds awesome. I would love to. Yeah,
1: yeah so um, as we wrap up today, uh, Dr. Arn, you've been very generous with your time. I was wondering, we have about 4,000 listeners that tune in that are our hardcore audience. And they are amazing. And many of them are priests, and religious and DREs and parishes. And they are hungering for giving people Christ, you know, putting them back in the making church Christocentric again. <laughs> and so our hope is um, to arm them, not just with theology and theory, but also we always try to end with some very, very practical stuff. So thinking on the fly, off the cuff, um, what would you say? Let's just say, let's just speak into the DREs out there what would you say would be the, the, the best advice you can give them on a practical level about really bringing Christ to our, our parishes?
0: Well, I kind of borrow from uh, my mentor, St. Jose Marie Escrivá, who uh, I'll paraphrase, you know, we're not just out to reach them, we are them. And we need Christ to reach us Ooh, awesome. every day. And, uh, you know, as as Christ reaches us, the, the flip side of that is something I wrote in my Bible back in the uh, mid seventies when I first converted Scott Hahn, telling another person about Jesus Christ is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found the bread of life Yeah, and what yeah. a privilege it is for us to get to share the bread of life with others.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. What about for our priests out there? What about, uh, for those in, in, in the ecclesial ministry who are, amidst all the hate and all the dismissals and all the hurt who are the good fathers striving to be good fathers? What, what may be some advice you might have for them?
0: Throw out your TV. No. Oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> Don't, you were
2: asking Dr. Hahn. Go ahead, Dr. Hahn.
0: So, um, you know, I think about father Michael Scanlon, who was the president and the chancellor here, really the second founder of Franciscan university, which all three of us kind of share, yeah. you know, and he, he was, uh um, he was a, a Harvard graduate, he was a JAG, attorney, uh, he was the dean, uh, he was the, uh, the president, he was the chancellor, but what he said to me shortly before he was called home to heaven was, um, you know, all of those titles put together don't add up and come close to what it means to be called father. That was for him the single most meaningful thing, because as a priest, he was a spiritual father, and he found more fulfillment in that than all of the other successes put together. And yet at the same time, he would acknowledge that it was a struggle. And so, again, the flip side of that is after uh, 40 years of marriage with six kids and 18 grandkids and number 19, we just found out the day before yesterday, is on the way and with two Uh sons who are in Two sons who were in the seminary, one of, you know, Jeremiah just a couple of weeks away from ordination to the transitional diaconate. I mean, God gets all the credit for this, to him be all the glory, to us, to me to be all the blame. But I mean, I would say this, that um, nothing in all of my life, all of the books that I've written, all of the talks that I've given, all of the classes that I've taught, they don't even come close to rising to the level of what it means to be a father it is the single most fulfilling task the most the joy the most joyful experience of my life and yet i can also say in all honesty and i think i should say this nothing has frustrated me more nothing has made me feel more inadequate on a daily basis than feeling like a father and so i would say to our spiritual fathers who are priests and to all of our own fathers according to the flesh who have their own natural kids who are also called to be priests in the domestic church, you know, allow God to father us all the way home. Allow Christ to not only transform bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but prodigal sons and sinners like me into true saints. I mean, to God be the glory, but thanks be to God for all of his priests. So thank you, my brothers in Christ, for also becoming our fathers in Christ.
2: That 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 is just the best wisdom that you could leave <laughs> us with, Doctor Han. And and I just I just so appreciate your time today. I know both uh, Gomer and I, you know, at, from a really young age, were really deeply affected by you. And I think our faith—I mean, a, a big a big chunk of it was because of uh, the the work you did. And so I I have been praying for you since I was in high school, and I'll continue that. Uh-huh. We ask our listeners oh, to pray for you people. and and yeah. for the important work you do at the Saint Paul Biblical Institute. I know, I know, you know, you, you. Uh, my best friend Kenny works there, and I know because of that, you guys are probably going to take over the world soon. So you know, uh, <laughs> so Trans Baldwin
0: uh, is my right arm. Yeah. I mean, he's my right hand man, and he is yeah. a joy to work with. Yeah, yeah, Kenny's yeah, right.
2: great. Uh, Gomer, what else do we got?
0: Uh, I think that's it. We're
1: ready to wrap up. I got one little short story, and then uh, we can send it out. Um, when I, I, this is how much my family invested in a Franciscan education, because every single audio cassette theory, series that Dr. Han produced through St. Joe's communications and, and all that we owned. And I listened to before I went to Franciscan. And then one day, this is back before online registration. I camped out so that I can get in PBS two my <laughs> spring semester freshman year. There's only one spot left in Dr. Han's class. And PBS, Two is, for those of you who don't know, Principles of Biblical Study, and it's New Testament. And I camped out. I got that class. I was so excited. I'm sitting next to a guy named Carson Weber. He's got a lot of <laughs> online oh, yeah. apostolates and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Carson and I, we, we became friends during this. And at one point, Dr. Han, you were talking about the sun will be darkened, the moon will no longer give its light, you know, all that, uh, the, the apocalyptic imagery, all of that discourse stuff. And I leaned over with my pen when you weren't looking and I wrote on the top of, um, Carson's paper, big Ben being broken. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so you already know where I'm going with this. And then you said, like, why does he say this? Why does he talk about the sun dark and blah, blah, blah? Well, you know, if I were a prophet today and let's say I were living in modern London, the, the prophets, you know, they use symbolic imagery. Now, imagine this if the so queen boring. came up to me and said, what are the future success of the UK and Great Britain? And I just took out a model of Big Ben and I just smashed it with a mallet. What do you think that's it? That's the equivalent because the sun, moon and stars were the calendar and the timepieces. And Carson's face just went totally white and he slowly turned his head and looked at me and he was like, how did you know that? And I was like, because I'm a prophet. <laughs> That's
0: because <fun>. I've consumed
1: <laughs> this talk hundreds of times. That's hundreds.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for recycling that just as I did. <laughs> uh, you, you, you threw me back and I probably have used that in PBS within the last year or two. So uh, now I'm going to have to find a new one. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: none of those students listen to this. You're good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you awesome. are too, both of you. <laughs> My goodness, thank God for this time.
1: Awesome. Well, Dr. Arm, would you like to close this out in prayer?
0: I would be honored to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, our hearts are filled overflowing because of the joy that you have given to us, even in the midst of hardship, even in the challenging times that we face. I thank you for these two brothers, for Dave and for Michael, and I ask that you would bless them, their families and their ministries, but most especially, that you would come to dwell in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ would be the Lord and the King of our lives until we get to see your face together in glory. Bless all of our listeners, draw them closer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, And in his name, we pray for the power of the Spirit to come down upon us to make us saints and nothing less. For we ask this, dear Father, in the holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Amen. 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 You've been listening to Every Knee Shall Bow. We hope to uh, see you next week again. And again, as always, if you have any questions about evangelization, discipleship, or any of those topics, uh, we want to hear from you. Just email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. That's eksb at ascensionpress.com. And we want to create a community, an army of evangelists. So please uh, let us know how you're doing out there and and send us your questions, and and we'll try to get to those soon. So God bless.
1: God love y'all.